Welcome to the Tenuous Links Podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons. Now, a number of years ago I had the pleasure of listening to a product presentation from today's guest. When it came to question time, I couldn't help myself. Is it possible to decouple face angle and loft with an adjustable driver? Now, I thought I was being all smart and down with the kids until the answer hit me between the eyes like a stone. Are you talking about a single cog or a dual cog axis? And he never heard from me again. So to exact my revenge, I invited him onto our Tenuous Links podcast, joining us all the way from Peachtree Corners, Georgia, although that is where the office is. I'm hoping you're nearby. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome today's guest, Flusher, propeller head and product guru, uh, Chris Fushell, from Mizuno Golf. Thank you so much for having me. I remember you asking that question. It was over a couple of years, and I was re- I was ready to go after whoever this smartass was. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even a pre-prepared question. It was a genuine one, and I'm going to get to the question again <laughs> later in the podcast. Because today's co- podcast is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit golf nerdy, but the story of the people in golf is really important to me, um, Chris, and I think important to to everyone involved in golf. So I do want to get a little bit of your background, but something triggered um, my very first question. I looked up in your room on your video and saw a dartboard in the background and I said, you've got a dartboard and there was immediately a story attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like there's a story attached to everything. I'm in my basement right now, which is my little area where I like to watch sports. I got a big TV right over here. I got my dartboard right over my right shoulder the, the story behind this was actually uh, my wife gave this to me for Christmas, which was the year after uh, we got engaged, which was fun because it happened in we were in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had this big grand plan of when I was going to do it. And then it got too cold. We didn't go where we were supposed to go. She didn't want to. I didn't want to do whatever. It got to be the very last night. And I figured, well, I'm probably just going to wait and do it another time. <laughs> and then we were playing darts at a, at a bar. And I ended a game with a perfect bullseye and decided that was the perfect time to propose. So I dropped to a knee right there. So all the oh, pictures wow. have the darts in the background with the bullseye. It's perfect. <laughs> so we have to have one in the basement. Well, I think that's a fantastic story. And, and given the fact that, that we've got Valentine's Day, well, I'm not sure when this comes out, but it's just it's the ultimate romantic, Chris. So we already <laughs> know a little bit more about you than we did before. And then over your other shoulder is one of those iconic moments from – uh, Mizuno in that a, a player who was not contracted and therefore won't be named mm-hmm. but might have a first name that rhymes with Crooks, um, when he was using the 900 tours to win a, a particular golf tournament. So that's quite dear to you as well. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, I was a club engineer. I've been a club engineer since 2004. I always talked about wanting to win a major uh, with, I quote unquote, win a major, me win one with one of my clubs. And that finally came to fruition in 2017 at the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills uh, when the JPX 900 tours being wielded by a guy who has a lot of game, uh, (laughs) won won this first of two U.S. Opens and first of four majors using clubs that I engineered. So. Of course, I got to have this up on the wall too, along with one of the four irons, the JPX 900 Tour. So, yeah, of course, I, I got all these. Th- There's a story around everything around me. 
That's right. Maybe in the second, when, when you're invited back, you can actually give us for a grand, a grand tour. But you've already <laughs> distracted me from my outstanding list of questions that I had. So when you talk about your, your iron, was this your baby? The this one, maybe more so than a lot of them. And the reason I say that is because, you know, with Mizuno, we've got a long history of irons. We also have a long history of being kind of predictable about what irons are next. Replace the 23 with a 24, the yeah. 5 with a 6, whatever. You can almost put on a spreadsheet, which might happen a lot, what's going to come next. Uh, the JPX 900 Tour was something that was something we had never done before. And that was something that myself and guy who, uh, my boss at the time, David Llewellyn, we proposed, um, what if we bring kind of the MP look, that better players, that Mizuno look to our JPX line, which has traditionally been our game improvement line, our bigger golf club, and really utilize that to help show off that each of our models of fam, each of our families of models get support from the best players in the world. And the 900 Tour was a club that I kind of pitched as, you know, I think we could design this. And the cool story behind it was we, at the time, were looking to sign a player, and this guy was one of the guys on the list. So I started trying to design something that I thought looked like stuff that he's liked in the past. And it just so turned out, even though we never signed him, he signed with Nike at the time, um, when Nike stopped making clubs and he started looking on his own, he came across these without us putting them in his hand and he put them into play, which really, I mean, it spoke to the design intention worked and it got his attention and the product was good as well. So I do take a lot of ownership over that product. So do you think in his basement, he's got a photo of you standing there with a JPX 900 tour? <laughs> I can guarantee you he has no clue who I am. So I absolutely <laughs> do not. <laughs> and is that one of the things that the anonymity is irrelevant? The pride of the achievement is the only thing that matters. I mean, obviously your profile in, in your current role, and I'm not even sure what your official title is, probably vice president <laughs> of something, but because that's what happens over there. But but is that is that just something that, that goes with the lot, is that your pride comes when you see people using them or you pop up at a golf course and someone's got a set that you've had a hand in? Absolutely. You know, it's it's always something. And, and being a part of a crew like Mizuno is really, it's really cool. And at, at the same time, is really nerve-wracking at the beginning because, you know, you know the history that goes behind yeah. every iron, every model that we put out. And you know the expectations that come from not only you know, ourselves, but the expectations from the tour players, from the consumers, from the fitters, from everything. So it's one of those things where, you know, right at the very beginning, it's really hard to believe you'll actually get to do your own work and get the Mizuno name stamped on it. Yeah. So to kind of earn that trust and to be able to get to a point in your career where, you know, really it's your baby and you can take control over the design and you're one of the main guys doing it. There's a lot of pride personally that goes along with that. I mean, I feel, I feel a large connection to everything we put out just because I feel like, you know, I, I know why we did this. I know why it's better than something else out there. And yeah, there's absolutely pride in there. And is one of the challenges then from, there are so many questions coming from this, um, but is one of the challenges then from a, a marketing delivery? Because I, like some of the marketing lines you get over the journey, uh, uh, complete piss takes, to be fair, Nick. And, and I think they're more important to um, marketing departments than they are to consumers, but that's okay. Like I don't want to bag everybody. But right. is getting that message of 
would there not be a, be a benefit in just putting Chris Fochel out there saying, I've got to tell you how many sleepless nights I've had over this island? Like, I know it's a long ad and, and mm -hmm. it would probably have to be a video ad and it might go for three hours. But, but that idea of, you know, I tinkered, I see that gap there. That gap took me four months because I just couldn't get the yeah. angle right. What's funny, and maybe it comes from the Japanese culture as well, is there's a humbleness that comes along with that. Where, you know, we've talked about it a lot where you look at the real, I'd almost call it boutique products out there, whether it be, you know, a certain line of putters with a name on it, a certain line of wedges with a name on it. You know, you almost feel like there's, there's, it's, it puts the person above the company. It puts the person above the product. And that's something that just it's would never fly in Japan. Yes. It's funny because that just doesn't work with their culture and, and just the level of humbleness. It's funny. I'll tell a story of one of the guys, one of the engineers who I work really closely with. His name is uh, his Kazu Doi. And Kazu is a fantastic designer. He's done a lot of the irons alongside with me. He did a lot of the putters. And when we were working on putter names, we jokingly said, we want to name these the, the Kazu putters. And he was like, he almost got scared. He's like, yeah. you know, you cannot do that. Like he, so it's cool because that humbleness doesn't allow that, like, you know, the ego to take over there. So, so we shouldn't be expecting the Vosch 24 line of irons. I, I don't think so. <laughs> you wouldn't want that anyway. <laughs> it would detract from what it is. And then going back to the, you know, you said you, with the 900 tour background of it, um, you said you, you tried to design an iron that you felt would appeal to person in question's eye based on what he liked. And was that, is that touch and feel or is that CAD CAM? I think it's all of those. So, um, I mean, touch and feel go hand in hand with our process, with how we forge golf clubs. We knew the feel was going to be there. To me, it's a little bit more of a visual thing. Um, you know, if you looked at his history of what he'd played, uh, it was small, it was compact, it was thin top line. So, you know, you knew how to get the, the shape and address. The shape from behind is the interesting one. And that was where we almost took a look at his persona, how he carries himself, what he wears. And we, and we knew that he's not necessarily the super traditional guy who just wants a blade with one line across the back, a la Tiger Woods. You know, yeah. you could picture what Tiger wants, and it is so clean. This guy's a little bit more aggressive than that, a little bit younger, a little bit edgier. So with that, we put some edgier lines on it. You know, it, it's not a typical like MP type design. There are some really hard edges, some abrupt transitions, but at the same time, it's still clean. So it was a little bit, you know, there's, there's a guess in there. There's, but we tried to do our research in terms of what we thought he would like. And then from the engineering side, we know a lot about what clubs people are using. We know a lot about the center of gravity location, where they're placed and all that. And this club, actually, we intentionally moved the center of gravity slightly from where our traditional clubs would have been, thinking that that would, that would entice them as well. And, and again, you ask this guy where the center of gravity is, my guess is he doesn't, I don't know that he doesn't know, but I do know that he doesn't care. But, but uh, we moved it to a place that we knew would appeal to him. Well, I, I think that, that whole story is fascinating. Before I get too jealous, I want to try and get back to my normal line of questioning. Because I, but I think this is the story, and, and not to labor the point, but this is the background and this is the knowledge and this is the amount of care 
that goes into design as opposed to a company just sitting there saying, what's next? I don't know, put a dent in the toe and let's whack another groove in the bottom and let's add another number. To your point, let's just keep the progression going and we'll, we'll see how we go. So I love the fact that there's there's involvement and I think you're, you're um, not that your authenticity was ever in question, but I think people now know a little bit more when they're, when they're listening to Chris Foshaw with the good people interviewing him, they'll understand a little bit more about what's in his background. But speaking of background, um, playing, I want to get back to the origins of golf yeah. for Chris Foshaw. When, what, how, who, why? Give me your golf. My dad. Yeah, it's, it's my dad, number one. So he, he was a college golfer. Um, you know, this is college golf in, I'd call it the late, I guess it'd be the late 50s, early 60s. So it's yeah. been a while. Yeah. But he did. He played golf in college. And he was always the type who, you know, he just loved it. He was always around the game. I am, I'm one of four children. I'm the only son. So when I, when I was born, which I was third in the line, he finally had his golfing buddy, which was exciting. So it's like our family trips revolved around, okay, we can go to the beach, but we're going to go to the beach that has nice golf courses. (laughs) And dad would disappear and play golf. And it was always, that was kind of his deal. And what was cool about it is, you know, growing up my, the first time I got signed up uh, to play was I was 11 years old and he would take me out. So I didn't get started really early. Um, I wasn't like tiger swinging with, you know, two years old, but at 11, he made sure I got some instruction and he, he he took me straight into a clinic with, and it happened to be a couple friends were in there too. So we kind of kicked it off from there. And one of the fun things about him is he's, he's always been an equipment junkie. Like my basement was always full of equipment when, when I was growing up. So when I was young, even before I started playing, we would, our Saturday morning ritual is we would wake up, we would go to McDonald's and get some pancakes, and then we'd go to the golf store and we'd look at putters, look at clubs. And this is before I even knew what I was looking at. You know, that was what we would do. And that was how we would spend and, you know, father-son bonding. So from there, it was always, he was the type who would not let me win on the on the course. He wouldn't let me win if we played basketball. It didn't, didn't matter. He was a, com- a competitor. So I knew and I finally was going to get good enough to beat him that I earned it. And it was kind of cool. So, you know, from him, it just, that's where I got into golf, just 100%. And as soon as I started playing, I was hooked really, really quickly. And how old were you when you knocked him off for the first time? I was, it's funny because I almost did at 16 years old. Uh, I was two up going into the last hole and there was a lake on the left that he made sure he pointed out that I saw that trouble. And I mean, he talked me right into having a bad hole and we, we tied that day. So I made double, he made par. So I tied him. That didn't count. I hadn't beaten him yet. And it was another year before I got him. The funny thing about that was the rule was once I beat him, Chris hundred dollar bill comes straight to me. Yeah. And actually, my, some of my neighbors knew that my dad would never let me beat him. So not only did my dad give me a hundred dollars, I had a hundred dollars <laughs> from a couple neighbors as well. So it was a nice victory. <laughs> Do you remember what the pressure was like standing on that tee? Do you remember that? Can you can you oh. recall clearly enough the pressure with, with water left? I absolutely remember it. I was so nervous. <laughs> and it and it was because we were on vacation. We had gone, uh, we were out in New Mexico. We were playing at a course in New Mexico. 
I mean, hell, this is 30 years to 20 something years ago. And I remember exactly what was going on standing right there. And does it give you a sense? Well, two things. One, what was going on? And two, does it give you a better sense of what it must have been like for for what it's like on life's like on tour? I mean, you played elite golf anyway, but yeah. So I mean, it got. I was I was nervous. I knew I could do it. I knew I was at that point. I was a better golfer than him. I truly believe I was a better golfer, but I couldn't overcome the nerves to beat him. And he was, and he would talk trash and talk me down. So and it worked. So um, so there was. It took some confidence building in myself to deliver under pressure. That being said, to watch what these guys, what the pro golfers do, is unbelievable. I mean, I've I've been you know privileged enough to get to stand beside some of the best players in the world, watch number one players play and hit balls and follow them around the course. It, it's amazing how many people think like, I'm a scratch player today, and people think if you're scratch, man, you should try pro. Those guys would beat me every single day. On my best day and their worst day, they are still significantly better. So yeah, I mean, the the just how good they are, the pressure they deal with, and to not get rattled, to to never make double is unbelievable. Like they, they just don't check out. Was there a moment in your golf life where you can remember that I'm now in love with the game, or was it love building? I mean, was it like the bullseye on the dartboard, or was it was it this progression of? And I'm not suggesting that if you didn't get the bullseye, you're not now married. But but was it a progression of of I just love it more and more the more I play, or was there a moment, an aha moment that just said, "Wow, this is the best." I I loved it from early on. I I feel like when it really took hold, and it's funny, it it almost took hold at maybe a bad time because it took hold when I was in college. Um, you know, I, I was away at university. I didn't really know that many people there, and what I leaned on was golf. Like you know, if I if if I ever was having a bad day or whatever, I would just. I hate to say it, I would cut class and go play golf <laughs> and then I would feel better. And it's like, it, it was just the community I met around golf. I got to know some of the pros at a course or by my university and got to play there a good amount. And I just was hooked on it from there. And I was, I was studying engineering, but you know, you go into engineering, not knowing what you're going to end up doing. I started as an electrical engineer and hated that. But ultimately, somewhere around like sophomore, junior years when I decided, you know what, let's see how we can tailor this towards golf and try to work that direction. And did golf then, so, so the college you're referring to is? It's Vanderbilt University in Nashville, yes. Yeah, so they're the ones with the great football team, as you pointed out, when I, <laughs> when I, when I just assumed that you would be happy because of the dogs winning and then all of a sudden you came back saying yeah no we've got an issue here <laughs> no yeah i'm not a, I, and i it's you know i'm sure my neighbors all around me would kill me saying and i am not a georgia bulldog fan even though i grew up in georgia i always cheered for the rival the georgia tech the, the engineering school as opposed to them right right anyway so so vanderbilt so did you play you played college golf what, what was their college golf so I, I wasn't on the team in college, but I like to say I owned intramurals there. Like in, <laughs> yeah. any of the club teams, intramurals, I, I was wiping the floor with those. So I was there um, from 1999 until 2003. Um, there was another guy there from 1999 to 2003. Brant Snedeker was there. Oh, here we go. Uh, now the name drops begin. Yeah, uh, you're like so, the new and, kipper. Yeah, he was – He 
was the, I mean, he was the anchor of the team and he was phenomenal. So I actually talked to the coach a little bit in terms of, you know, saying, you know, is there any opportunity to try to walk on anything like that? And essentially, you know, unfortunately it, it was, if you're not on scholarship, there's not really a spot for you. Hate to say it, but that's the case. So I didn't, um, you know, I never got a chance to play in college, but I absolutely played all through college. You know, I played at least once a week, um, you know, met a, bun- met a bunch of great friends to this day on the golf course around there. And, you know, I, I just, I, I leaned into golf during it and started to see how I could tailor my life to go more towards that direction. So before we get into that, that life in golf and uh, the professionalism of golf, uh, I want to just do, give you a chance to drop names that'll piss me off. So I want to know, give me the best name that you've played with okay. and give me the best place that you've played that I'll really resent you for you saying Ooh. Okay. Okay. Uh... Played with Luke Donald, uh, former number one in the world. Fantastic yeah, I didn't player. Yeah, played with uh, and played with Jonathan Bird, who you know number of wins out on tour. He, he's a great guy. That was actually fun because I was out fitting him on my birthday, and he's like, "Oh, it's your birthday. All right, then we're going and playing. We're done with yeah. this." So, yeah, cool. so that was really fun. Um, so you know, gotten to play with a lot of good players. Um, the best place I played, uh, I got to play Cypress Point. Out in in Carlsbad, or not Carlsbad, out in uh, Northern Cal near Pebble. Cyprus was, you know, and it's funny because that was on a trip on the back end of playing Pebble Beach the day before, Spyglass the day before that. And then, I mean, it was, it was pretty special. So (laughs) that place, I've played enough good courses that I've never, that I don't feel like I get nervous on the first tee. I was nervous on the first tee there because, you know, you're probably never going to be here again. <laughs> and well, that will bring our podcast to a close. I've got no more time for Chris Vasher. Because um, Cypress, it's funny you say that about the first tee, is that, and this is not as a counter name drop, but just in terms of the nerves um, mm-hmm. of the first tee at, let's say, an old course, um, mm-hmm. probably the only time I'll ever get to play there. My caddy said to me after I'd hit it, he said, you're up next, aren't you? I said, I've already played. He said, was that that quick? Is that why you're one yard in from the inbounds on the left fence? <laughs> I was calling four to two groups coming up 18. And there were, but there's kind of that it's pressure. It's the widest fairway on the planet, right? <laughs> on, the, on the planet. But you build it up so much, um, mm-hmm. th- this idea of playing somewhere as special as that. And, and Cyprus, I'll be fair, I'm not ever going to get the opportunity and I'm comfortable with that. Um, but, but you build it up so much. That how did you then recover? Like you, you talked about your nerves. What was your mm-hmm. first tee shot like? Uh, I actually hit the first tee ball pretty good. That but that where the nerves kind of hit me was I I hit it over the green. First hole's a par four, kind of downhill. It's actually a really cool tee ball because you're hitting over seventeen mile drive, which is you know the road that that we that winds all through Pebble. And what's crazy is you hit over it, but you hit over a bush, so you don't really see the road. And it's it's a weird tee ball. So I actually hit it pretty good. It's a generous fairway, but then the second shot's downhill to a really, there's a really cool um, just layout complex to that green. And I went a little bit over. And from there, I'm like, you know, trying to hit this putt shot to an Alistair McKenzie green that's lightning fast running away from me. It didn't go well from there. I don't think I settled down until about number four or five. (laughs) And it's amazing that the the pressure that goes on your short game versus your long game. I mean, they're two different, Mm -hmm. completely different mindsets. But that's one of the great things about McKenzie is that he'll give you a little bit of a cuddle along the way. And then just when you think Mm -hmm. you're on top of him, 
um, he'll punch you in the face. Um, have you played <laughs> Royal Melbourne? I have played Royal Melbourne. I, uh, so I was fortunate enough to, on my trip over to Australia, I got to play, I believe it was the East course. I didn't yeah. get to play the composite, but I mean, just there's, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal day. And it, I mean, you can't beat an Alistair McKenzie design and Royal Melbourne was fantastic. It was, it was awesome. Uh, and that combination for us of, of McKenzie and Russell, I mean, we've got two icons, but an Australian icon, design icon, and and a global design icon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're, we're reasonably lucky. I just wanted to reinforce the fact that we're pretty lucky down here. <laughs> um, but I want to just – so now getting back to this this journey. So so when and how did your Mizuno journey begin? So you, you were at Vanderbilt. You're studying engineering. You're too smart for the golf team uh, and a better player than most of them other than Brant Snedeker. So this is what I've established <laughs> from the conversation. So you would have been second on the golf team, but you weren't there on a golf scholarship, so they didn't let Easy. you play. Easy. Correct. Um, Correct. <laughs> whilst you were studying engineering, electrical engineering, but then you moved. Something happened. So tell yeah, me where Mizuno came about. Well, it's funny. I'll, I'll even go back a little bit before that in terms of when Mizuno first entered the mix. Was So I, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So Mizuno is in Peachtree Corners, Norcross. It's up on the north side of Atlanta. And I grew up not too far from there where um, I, I was at a club called Dunry Country Club. And, you know, myself, couple friends, we're a bunch of snot-nosed kids who think we're really good. And we decided one year, one year we're going to reach out to Mizuno to say, you know, we are really good. If you, When you need people to test our clubs, we're your people. And that went completely ignored, as it should have, because we were in high school at the time. So it's funny. So then I leave for college. When I get back, um, I start I start my research, and you know I looked at a bunch of courses, or a bunch of uh, companies in Carlsbad. I looked at some companies in Phoenix, um, and then you know obviously I reached out to Mizuno as well. And this was back in the day. Um, there was a, a website, Monster.com. I don't know if that was a thing, but it was like it was a it was a job posting website. Oh. And I came across a job posting for a club engineer, and it was cool. It was a club engineer with Mizuno Golf, and you read you read the whole thing, and it's uh, you know it requires ten years experience. It requires this you know this master's degree in this all all of these things that I don't even begin to have because, you know, I'm I'm just graduated from college. So I don't care. I'm applying anyway. So I put my application in, uh, filled out this big, long resume, sent something out, a nice letter about why I'm the perfect guy for the job, expecting again to never hear one word. But I actually got, you know, it's funny when the timing works out because I got reached out to by a guy named Masao Nagai. Nagai-san is... He was an engineer for Mizuno for the longest time. If you look through like the USGA RNA rule book on all these illegal golf clubs, he designed half of those golf clubs. Like I've <laughs> seen the putter where it's like, you know, there's the rule that can only be as, as long as it is deep. He designed the putter that's this long and has a flange that sticks out this far to make it legal. So it's <laughs> cool. So he reached out to me um, saying that, you know, Mizuno is basically opening up a research and development center in Atlanta. And while you are grossly underqualified for the club engineer position, we are looking for somebody to be a testing engineer, which was what I had wanted to be before high school. So, so, um, so asked me if I wanted to interview for that, which I did. And I was fortunate enough to get that role. So that was my step into Mizuno was a testing engineer where my job was, go to the golf store, buy everything, and then go take it on the robot, cut it up, hit it, 
analyze it, do all of this stuff, and basically learn what makes a club work from that. And what what does make a club work? If I had, if you had to summarize it yeah. in three words, uh, you know, it's in three words you're gonna make <laughs> no, it. Well, well, come on, uh, give you no, so, no, uh, I mean to the process. It, it's all about understanding the process of manufacturing, the yeah. materials used, and what are your basically what is the design goals of each one. So to me, like I, when I would buy drivers, the biggest thing I would look at, you know, you want to look at ball speed. You want to look at how fast it's, the, it's coming off. You want to look at forgiveness, which is a moment of inertia. So, you know, you do a lot of measurements on those, but then you really need to understand how you go about engineering each of those things into the club. And you can't do those unless you understand how a club is made. So what, what was really cool about kind of my journey of being a testing engineer and then working my way to a, a club engineer was it's almost like an apprenticeship, the testing part of it, because you get to see all of the world of clubs and you get to see what works and what doesn't. From there, your other job is to you know spec out golf clubs. So your job is to, when you buy all the competitor clubs, you you measure everything that can be measured on them, whether that's you know face thicknesses, top line, taper rates to taper rates to shafts, you know uh, hosel bore depths, you name it. Like you measure all of these things. Like to to actually actually have measured offset to understand where that measurement comes from and you know, draw the scratch lines on the hosel versus here allows you to understand what causes what and how to and how to engineer them as well. So it teaches you to think in three dimensions. It teaches you all the tools you need to be able to engineer one. So to me it's like it, you know if you were to just hire a guy and say, okay, make a golf club, he would be miles behind somebody whose job was literally testing golf clubs because they because you don't know what you don't know until you start digging into it. Yeah, it's the classic Donald Rumsfeldism, um, mm-hmm. the, the unknown unknowns. But um, yep. in your product testing days, and I don't want you to name names, but have you tested a product and gone, how the hell did this make it to market? There- <laughs> uh, I'd say yes, uh, <laughs> particularly, and I'll say clubs, just the overall clubs are better than they used to be. They yeah. keep getting better. And everybody always talks about, you know, how do you keep improving? What is there to improve? They are improving year after year. Processes are improving. Performance is improving. The shaft side is what really stood out to me in terms of like measuring graphite shafts 15 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, what I would do is I would measure uh, what we call an EI curve, which is basically how stiff it is at any point along that shaft. And I would measure it at multiple orientations. So at zero degrees, at 30 degrees, at 60 degrees, at 90 degrees, rotate it all around to make sure you're not finding uh, seams and, you know, stiff, stiff planes and stuff like that. And you used to all the time where it used to matter, like how you installed that shaft, it would, it would change the playability of the shaft. It could play like a stiff in one orientation, like an R in another. I'd say clubs have really evolved from there and it's not doing that anymore. And then on the like on the on the actual head side, it's funny because it's tough to say how did that make it to market because you can usually point to how something makes it to a market in terms of the story works. Yes. Um, yeah. I'll talk about like um, 
there's a certain driver that pushed the MOI limit and the spatial limits in terms of the box it was allowed to fit in back in the day. You know, it, it wrote the rule of, okay, my rule is I've got this many millimeters by this many millimeters, and it can only be 5,900 MOI. Let's design a club here to here that's 5,900 MOI. I totally get how it made it to market, but it, does that make a good golf club? No. So, <laughs> And they made a loud noise when you hit them. Um, <laughs> when the top didn't pop off. <laughs> <laughs> so... So let me just, I'm going to ask you to, to eat a bit of humble pie and then to brag because it's along this line. So what product from another man, another manufacturer do you look at, let's say in the last 12 months, and you just go, either I like what you did there or secretly you resent it because you're like, well, you guys killed it. Yeah, you know, um, I like looking at other people's clubs and understanding what they do. To, to be honest, I've really liked the, the P790 line of irons. I think is is really really good. Uh, they've done a really good job with the design, the look, the feel, the sound, the performance. I like what they've done with that set of irons. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm jealous because I think ours very much go up against them. But I think that that's a really great execution on a product that looks cool and performs even better than it looks. So that was that, very that, very noble. Yeah, yeah that's and I right. think that's it's really important to be able to acknowledge um, strength. So, so congratulations on on that because I'm not sure how others, not that any others have ever agreed to be interviewed <laughs> me, but I don't know how they would react. But I think that's outstanding. So then, on the flip side of that, what product do you reckon you've got in your arsenal that they look at and they go, "You bastards"? <laughs> um, what's funny is I, I, and to the direct competitor to that, our new Mizuno Pro two two five, to me. It's everything that P790 is without some of the, um, I'd call it, manipulations that needed to happen to make that product right. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the world of hollow irons, and there's a lot of hollow irons out there. There's a lot of hollow irons that are filled with stuff. And a lot of times that filling comes at a, it's a necessity to make up for uh, a flaw in the product. And by flaw, it's typically a sound thing, an acoustic thing. Um, so, you know, I've, I've hit a lot of hollow irons in my day, and a lot of them, some feel good, some don't feel good. You can make basically anything feel good by filling it up and not giving it room to vibrate properly. So the, the handcuff in filling something up is that's just mass that could be better used elsewhere. So for us, like to me, that's where when you look at our hollow irons, they're not filled with anything because we've designed them with our grain flow forging process, with our harmonic impact technology. We've done a lot of things to make up for anything that would have sounded funny. We've made it up in the engineering side as opposed to masking it with something. Yeah, fix it, fixing it as the last point. Correct. Fix it at Correct. the first point, yes, before the yeah, problem exactly. Um, okay, good answer. Now I'm going to go into uh, – this is where we'll get a bit golf nerdy. So I'm just going to throw some engineering terms at you um, or general questions. I don't even know what – I can't summarize it. Just bear with me. <laughs> what is golf club design's holy grail? Um, let's say in, in irons or is there one? Uh, the holy grail of club design. I mean, ultimately it's, it's when look meets – when look and performance don't add up. Because performance is the key that, that, that everybody needs, 
the look is what everybody wants. And that's where I think clubs have, clubs have approached that Holy Grail a lot more over the last number of years, where now like the, the players distance market is clubs that look like players clubs, but don't perform like players clubs. So to me, the Holy Grail is if you can execute a true blade look and a true game improvement, high MOI performance. That's the holy grail. I'd love, I'd love, I've never heard it described like that. I love this idea of where look and performance don't make sense or or don't marry up. I think it is actually the clearest. Anyone who's listening to this doesn't immediately go, that makes sense. Um, (laughs) We'll probably not listen to this ever again. (laughs) That's fine. Um, What's the most misunderstood engineering concept by golfers that you hear? Uh, the most misunderstood engineering concept. <sighs> Let me think about that for a second. I would say, and it's not even an engineering concept as so much as a design concept. Yeah. I think people don't necessarily understand. And I'm going to go back to like something like offset. Why offset is good and why it's, and why like people associate certain looks with well i don't need that i don't need that like it, it, it's funny like thin top line better players demand a thin top line but they demand a good feel those two things contradict each other a thin top line is going to vibrate at a frequency that's not right so it's like you know if you design something so thin it's going to feel hard if you design something so thick then they're going to say i can't look at it so to me like the look is something that's really misunderstood. And then another thing is like, like bounce, like just bounce in general, in terms of how bounce has been viewed as quote unquote game improvements. Like a good player doesn't need a lot of bounce. A bad player. Oh yeah. You can use more bounce. Couldn't be more than couldn't be further from the truth. The best players in the world. Again, I talk about playing golf with Luke Donald, one of the best short games I've ever seen. He, all he talks about when you ask him how he hits a shot is he says, I use bounce. He uses bounce, understanding how to use bounce and how to use what a club is designed to do to do it. You know, they're like, again, so many things are engineered into this golf club. So you don't have to make these manipulations. Um, and I think bounce was a good one. We, we made a discovery and just to make this all about us, um, <laughs> we did a, we did a bounce, what I call a bounce deep dive with Kipper, who's the only guy of the three of us who can actually hit it consistently. Um, <laughs> but but we didn't tell him what the bounces were, and we were using ES21, and we didn't tell him we had an eight, a 12, and a 16. And he'd never used a 16 bounce in his life. We were hitting off cooch fairways that were tight but a little bit um, – with a little bit of giving them. And mm-hmm. without – Unprompted, he just said, yeah, that one was the best. We didn't mm-hmm. tell him which it was. And he chose the 16 because it didn't dive into the turf. But when we asked him both on and off camera, would you ever have used or thought about using a 16-degree bounce on a on a wedge that you would hit for that shot? He said, never in my life, like, mm-hmm. because good players don't touch high bounce. Right. And it, I hate it that it's gotten to the point, and it's it's one of those misconceptions out there where – it's it's funny in this industry where a spec isn't necessarily a spec. Like some specs are real specs, some specs are BS specs. Uh, for the longest time, loft was a real spec until everybody demanded they use a nine degree driver. 
not most people don't use a nine, don't need a nine degree driver. So yeah. people started putting nine degrees on a 10 degree driver. So it's like loft became one of those specs that became a BS spec. Bounce has turned that way where it's funny. You look at some of the top wedge manufacturers in the world, what the bounce says and what the bounce is do not line up. And that is by design because the better players are afraid of a big number. So it's funny how, you know, it's like you have to play to the ego with what the club says, and then you engineer what the player needs. Jeez, you're, you're coming up with some quotable quotes today. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting then from a from bounce, if we just deal with wedges, and there's a lot of things that I might not even go into now, but if we deal with bounce, one of the, the, the weaknesses that I then see is knowledge. So if you think about just a normal Joe Punter, forgetting PJ Tour, guys, you can go and get have all these experts on top of them. You look at it from a retail point of view. Mm-hmm. There's not a there's a lot of general knowledge about bounce, but no super specific knowledge unless you happen to just get a great fitter. But there's also mm-hmm. no great way of fitting it at a at, at a retail level. So given the importance of of bounce, and it's something that I've thrown at a number of companies over the journey, is there not a point where bounce as a fittable aspect gets the same deep dive that driver shafts or iron shafts or otherwise get? I believe it should. And that's something that we, it's funny how often we have that conversation of navigating a player through wedge offering is critical to make sure you get the right thing because you don't, you don't, you get the most out of your product if it's fit to you properly. So if you get the most out of your, if you have the proper bounce, you're going to see more spin. You're going to see more, you know, better contact and all that stuff. So it's interesting because you're right. There's not a great way to do it right now. We have tried a number of ways that, that like try to help the retailer to push or, or I wouldn't say to push, but to help the retailer to navigate a consumer through it. But ultimately, and what I hate is that wedges sadly are more of an impulse buy than they are a fitted product. And that's very much to the detriment of the player. You know, if you look at the typical wedge on a rack, it's got a dynamic gold, 120, 130 gram shaft in it. It's a, it's a stiff flex or S 400 or even an S 200. It's, you know, it's heavy Uh, for a player who wants spin out of their clubs. They're, they've got the exact wrong components in it. And it's funny how players will play a blade wedge with a dynamic gold, and then they'll go their very next club will be a graphite shafted game improvement club. And they, they wonder why they can't spin it. So, you know, spin comes from so many different things. It comes from having the right components in it, but also comes from proper turf interaction and proper, proper contact and bounce is a big part of that. So until we can convince the consumer that the wedge needs to be fit and not being bought off the rack, it's going to be tough to even take that next step further to fit different parts of the wedge as well. Yeah. Um, okay. I've got I've, um, a, a few others actually, cause then I'm going to get into the big topics. Uh, no, no, it's not going to go for hours. I promise you. But, but the next one, so gear, gear effect, um, mm-hmm. and the impact as MOIs increased, the impact of high MOI or higher MOI on, on bulge mm-hmm. and roll and on, on gear effect. So, um, so the, the idea of gear effect, but then has bulge and roll adapted as MOI has changed across the board, forgetting what 
companies are talking about? I would say by now it has. When when club MOIs, like when I first started on the engineering side, MOIs of drivers were in the, and I'm talking like toe heel MOI, were in the 36 to 3,800 oh. range. Now they can get up to 5,900. But you know, 5,900 is usually not there. But you know, you, it's not uncommon to see well over 5,000. Um, in that evolution, the MOIs grew faster than the bulge and rolls adapted to that growth. So I'd say for the first number of years, like I'll, I'll use, for example, the, the TaylorMade burner, the, the original burner, I, I want, not the original burner, yes. but the relaunch <laughs> of the burner that was like the 5,000 MOI driver that was the first 5,000 that looked like a real driver. I would say that the bulge and roll on that golf club still lived closer to something that didn't have that MOI. Right. Um, and I, it's funny how you look at, I think certain companies were, uh, and maybe it's that they adapted or maybe their MOIs didn't grow as fast, but I'll use Ping as an example of somebody Ping has always been very good in my eyes of the MOI matches the bulge and roll dead on. And I say that from a like robotic testing point of view, you know, we, when we do a robotic test, we'll do center impacts, toe impacts, heel impacts, and look at the effect of that gear effect and see how much it corrects. Um, you would all pings are really good at correcting. There's a reason ping is known as the straightest hitting golf club. And it's not just that it's got the highest MOI. The, yeah. M, the, the bulge and roll match that MOI. They do a great job of that. I feel like we do a fantastic job of that as well. Other companies I think are really good at it now, but there was a, there was a period of five or six years where the bulge and roll didn't match the club MOI. And you'd see one of two things. If it, if the face was too flat, then what would happen is the the club the ball would hang out on a toe or a heel impact. If the ball and roll was too much, then it would overcorrect. And we mm -hmm. saw a lot of overcorrection where a toe ball would finish left of the line and a heel ball would finish right of the line. So yeah, it's it, they have to match. It's critical that they match, or the club's not not engineered properly. Um, now, now my next one just on drivers, and you know I'm going to ask you this because this has been something that's that's fascinated me about ST or ST220X versus ST220Z. Mm -hmm. um, the Z is the high MOI straight driver and the X, if you only read the, the marketing stuff, forget the stuff, forget, forget what you've spoken about in your interviews. If you only read what was printed, you would say, if I want to hit high draws or I want to correct mm -hmm. a fade, it's X. Right. Yet you th threw at me an idea, or in fact, it was from a TXG interview, yeah. uh, and it, it, my head rattled. Um, the STX is, in fact, if you love this idea of workability, Chris, mm -hmm. the STX may well be better suited to you than the Z because? Because with the STZ, Z, the, the, you, head Z, is more in, the head is more in control. What I mean is, you know, what, what we've done by manipulating the center of gravity across the Z-axis or the X-axis is we have changed the, there's, there's a couple ways to measure moment of inertia. There's the toe-heel MOI, which is the most known one. The toe-heel MOI on the STZ is the largest. It's the most stable and in the, just a neutral direction. Another measurement that controls how workable, and by workable, I mean how much is a player able to manipulate the face is the MOI about the shaft axis. 
So basically, when a pl- if you were if you were to go back to a you know any sort of golf club that's got adjustability on the driver, we it's almost become known. Pull the weight towards the heel; it's easy to draw. Move the weight towards the toe; it's harder to draw, and it's easier to fade. What's really you're doing is you're manipulating the CG about the ma- about that shaft axis. Yeah. So when the when the CG to shaft axis is long. The head is more in control. The head's doing what it wants to do. And it's tougher for a player to to physically manipulate the face in a direction they want. When the center of gravity gets shorter, it's easier to, because that MOI is not as high, the player's in more control. So the analogy I like to use is a muscle back. A muscle back, everybody knows, is the most workable golf club out there. And it's funny how workability goes. It's the inverse of forgiveness. Yeah. It's workable because a player can manipulate the face. It's workable because it has a shallow moment of inertia, but ultimately that MO or sorry, a shallow CG, but ultimately that MOI about the shaft axis is the lowest. So if a player wants to hold on to it, they're not fighting the club to hold on to it. If they want to shut it down, they're not fighting the club to do that. The STX, it's the same thing. It's the same principle is we pull that center of gravity closer to the shaft axis. So if a player wants to work the ball, that one is more workable. So all of that to say, typically a, a heel word MOI won't open as much or won't miss it as far right for a right-handed player because it's easier to close. It's not necessarily that the club itself closes, it's that it's easier to close. Fabulous answer. Um, it really annoys me how clearly you explain these things. I've got a lot of work to do. Um <laughs> So my next one, um, and I've only got a couple more, forged versus forged. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's forged and then there's forged. Why is it – so without explaining the fact that some companies will forge a back piece and call the club forged. Right. And others, for example, like Mizuno, would take a billet of steel. You know, mm-hmm. So why is it that, that there is no definition within that term within the industry that's been said, you can't call it that unless this much of the club is forged? I wish you could, but but you're as long as some part of it is forged. Technically, they're telling the truth. You know, it it goes back to as far as you know there are parts that have been cast, and then you stamp it at the end and move some mass around, and then it becomes forged. You know, ultimately, the, the definition of forging is reshaping a solid into another shape. So if, as long, it doesn't matter where that solid no. started, you know, if that solid started as a cast piece and then you reshaped it while it's still a solid, technically you forged it. It, it is still forged, right. Yeah. So the, the tricky thing about it is the what the player links in their head as the benefit of forged and do you actually get that? So ultimately, like the the reason players have gravitated towards forgings for history, you know, historically is that a forging, when when you forge a club and it stays in that solid state, you work the, the manipulation and the, the moving of that metal works out air bubbles. So it works out impurities, it works out voids within the golf club. When you work out those voids, then the club will vibrate longer. And it's funny how vibration is viewed as a negative. Vibration is great. You want vibration. To feel the ball on the face longer you want to feel more vibration. It's just on us to design that you're feeling the right frequencies of vibration. 
So a casting typically will not have that level of feel and the sound will be shorter. The sound will be quicker because those impurities, those air voids will, will take that sound away. So the tricky thing now is that forge is used all over the place. If you forge a back piece, you can call it forged, but ultimately you're not getting that long, true vibration that you'd get from a forged face and neck. So when you look at a Mizuno forging, ours all have at least the face and the neck are forged. We have not, we, you haven't seen us stamp forged on anything where we are not forging the impact area and everything connected directly to it. Um, and then from a, a cost point of view, this is a, a, I was having a conversation with a mate the other day and mentioned that I had the fortune of speaking to you and he said, I've got a question. What, cast versus forged, like what is the cost difference? Mm-hmm. Like there was some discussion just about retail price points and, and things. It was sort of yeah. casting versus yeah, I, forging. Just an actual mould. So to, to, to make a mould for something, you know, a cast mould will be basically uh, something that you pour liquid into and that mold, you could pour a billion pieces into that. You know, that, that, that mold is cheaper and that mold will continue to live its life because all it takes is it can it receive a liquid. That's yeah. all that matters from there. So on a forging, a forging mold has to be made out of a really, really strong material to withstand the, the power of the forging molds or the forging presses, the hammers that are hitting it. So those it's a tougher to make mold and at the same time they they wear out because they're getting you know they're getting literally beat up with every single club made but you can only make a certain number before you have to then remake them again so to put it in terms of a scale you know i'd say a forging mold is roughly 10 to 20 times more expensive than a casting mold and it has a shorter life to it as well so when you extrapolate that over selling golf clubs globally, you know if, if every 5,000 sets we make, we then have to make a whole new set of molds, then all of a sudden your cost of 10,000 sets is it's it just doubled. Um, where a casting, you could make a million of them. You know, you could just keep going with it. So it th- there are definite cost ramifications to making forgings, but the benefit we feel outweighs that cost. Um, okay, so so a few more questions to go, and then I am going to let you go and play darts. Um, <laughs> is it possible to change loft uh, on a driver without affecting face angle? <laughs> <laughs> this is going back to the original question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yes, it is. So, and you know, a lot of it, when you look at how clubs manipulate loft, it's funny because a lot of them, you know, uh, Mizuno's, for example, we are an off-axis adapter. And we are manipulating what we call the ELOF, the effective loft. And that's basically the relation of the face to the ground at a square face angle. So what we do is we actually just tilt that axis a little bit. So when you open that, then when you you open it a a click, then all of a sudden the face relative to the ground at a square face angle gets stronger. Uh, what you haven't done, though, is change the relation of the face to the soul. So what, what's funny is when you actually look at some things like, I'll go back to, again, yeah, I know I've used TaylorMade in a few examples before, but TaylorMade, I almost feel like from the purest golf golfer, caught a lot of shit when they were making the, the, um, the plate on the back. Yeah. that actually yeah. went up and down, that manipulated face angle. With R1, I think it was, yeah. 
the, yeah, the R1. That was actually manipulating the loft in relation to the ground. Like they were using that and as a face angle adjuster, what it was actually doing was changing the loft. <laughs> so yes. it's funny because you know, if you think about the definition of loft being here's the ground plane and the face plane, they were changing that relation. Nobody else is. So it it's funny because that's it, it that's what it takes to change a physical loft of a static head. If you're then talking about bringing rotation into it, then, you know, unless you're changing something else, you can't really do that. You can tilt stuff up, but it's like, you know, on, even on a dual axis cog, like we talked about before, yeah. if you change the loft, you've still changed the sole in relation to the ground as well. So. All right. Well, I just have to cop that. So will that be Nike's? <laughs> so here's one just on that. Will that be Nike's lasting legacy in golf? This, the fact that they were the first to market, thanks to the New Zealand boys, uh, with this adjustable hosel. I mean, that like they were, yeah. they were first in. Is that the? Is this the greatest legacy that that Nike, other than Tiger, will have left golf? I mean, I think they made some really cool stuff. Um, I think that that's a big part of it. Is that the adjustability and making it more mainstream? And that was that was fantastic. And and I love. It's it's funny as an engineer. One of the things you do, and you, you hate to say you do it, but you read patents, and reading patents is boring. And you know, but reading patents lets you know what are people working on, what are people thinking about. Nike for every for they they've had a ton of patents, and they put out a ton of patents. For every ten, one of them was really good, and nine of them were really <laughs> off the wall. But there was some really good stuff in there. And what I like is that they were challenging. They were challenging the norms of golf. So I think there's something to be said for that of, you know, making golf clubs that a lot of golfers resented the fact that Nike was making golf clubs saying they're not a golf club company, but you know what? They're bringing engineering to a lot of it. So I think they did a lot of good actually. So if, if Nike doesn't do that um, with VR, um, how long does it, t does it still happen? And how long did they speed up that process of moving into adjustable hosels? You know, I think it. I think it still happens eventually. You know, the the world of fitting was is it, it kind of paired up with the world of fitting in which adjustable heads, or I would say, shaft interchangeable heads, were really becoming a thing. And the next the next step in that is well, okay, if I'm inserting this, if I insert different orientations, I can do things. So. I think the timing was, it made a lot of sense with where the fitting world was going, where I don't think the world was far behind them, but to be able to, to innovate and be a, 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 you know, a groundbreaker, a pioneer in that, it's always a good thing. Yeah. Um, okay. A Mizuno free kick. What's the most underrated product that Mizuno make? Oh, um, honestly, I think our drivers are extremely underrated and I know they're getting more uh, attention than they have in the past, but man, Put it up against anything. Our drivers, the the new STZ is is <laughs> really it's really really good. Um, and it's it's very fittable. And that's one of the things we do with everything we make is make everything fittable. Um, I think they're extremely underrated. It'd be tough to say our irons are underrated. Yeah. They're really <laughs> highly rated, but. I'd still argue they're underrated because yeah. if they weren't, we'd be a hundred percent market share in it. <laughs> Very good. Now, now my, and this is before we get on to the, real, the the fun stuff. My last question is about bifurcation. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I've got a theory. Like, there's a lot of crap being thrown at at manufacturers, and it's the ball, and it's this, and it's that. And there's there's talk of you know, roll the ball back to 2000. Well, 2000 was already multi-layer, and I was lucky right. enough to be with Strata when I was there. So I know in '97 when Top Flight Strata existed, and you know, three years before Pro V1, like we're already in the multi-layer <laughs> space. Um, but from a driver head size point of view, this is then the next most consistent one that comes up is limit the size of the driver head and put a greater emphasis on skill. Mm-hmm. I've got a theory that, and it's only a theory, I've got a few, that if you as engineers are given a parameter of 360 cc's to work within, it would be potentially the greatest day of your engineering life, not the worst, because there's so many more things you can do because you're not, mm-hmm. you have less head size. You can muck around with more metals. Talk to me about bifurcation as a, as a, as a, your attitude, not Mizuno's attitude, if you can, uh, and then what that would mean from a design point of view if they said it's 360 cc's driver on tour. If the limit was at 360, we'd find a way to make a really, really good 360. Um, what what I'd say is, and this this is my challenge with a lot of when new rules come into effect, and you know if we got two sets of rules and all that stuff. What I fear from it is what it ends up costing the customer. And and by that by the customer, I don't mean the guy who gets it for free. What it ends up costing at the retail shelf. As soon as we have to make more products and use more exotic material. So to, to make a 360 driver, the second that 360 driver came out, you would see a lot more different materials used. So you couldn't just simply... Right now, you're using titanium and you're trying to take a little mass out of titanium with composite. That's what you're seeing happen a lot. But ultimately, you're not having to concentrate and add a ton of mass with more expensive materials, tungsten, stuff like that. So if the head got smaller, you'd start to see more multi-material where you're having to see larger chunks of heavier, more expensive materials. So the costs would go up. You know, the cost of the clubs we'd give away obviously wouldn't go up, but we'd 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 up the cost on everything. We're not gonna absorb that. It's gonna go it's gonna go downstream. So um I think new rules, you're right, are almost fun from the engineering side because it's like, okay, here's the new problem to solve and we have to think about something in a different way. But ultimately we're we're gonna get to a point where things are gonna perform fantastic, regardless of you know what that rule is. It might take a little time to get there and it might slow things down. Well, I think these pros are so damn good. You you put 360 in their in their head, I don't think it's gonna change that much. Look at how look at how Rory McElroy hits a three wood. His ball speed's still 180 and it that's 190 something CCs. Yeah. So I mean, I don't think it would change that much, sadly. And by sadly, do you think it need, do you think do you look at golf and the game that you grew up playing and the game that they play at the tour level and yes they're all, I mean they are awesome but do you miss a simpler time I don't I mean, I think there I love a course like Harbor Town in uh in in uh, Hilton Head Island where where it forces you to manipulate things around to me I you know and the Bryson show is is fantastic is must must see tv whether you yeah. like them or hate them um i love it the athletes that are coming to the game the way they're figuring out just how to hit the ball miles and figure it out from there and it's up to it's up to 
the course set up to you know make it be what it is you know ultimately golf on tv is for entertainment i like watching the u.s open i think the average person doesn't like watching the u.s open so the second you make all these rules that make golf harder and then make scores higher then the what the pga tour is going to do is then they're going to make course setup easier because they want to see people make birdies so you know it's Whatever you fix, you're going to cause another problem somewhere else. So to me, I don't think it needs fixing personally. Um, excellent. All right. Well, on, on that note, it's the big question. And this is the one yes. that everyone's wanted to know. So the Golf Barons Cup team. So so we invented or I, I stumbled upon an idea. Um, special teams, NFL, um, every two minutes, a new group of 50 guys are running out. This is the perception of Australians watching NFL is that every three minutes, 50 <laughs> other people run out. And then, oh, we need someone to punt. We need someone to punt return. We need someone to um, have a field goal attempt. And then we've got the bloke who's throwing it and the guy catches it. And, and then yep. Rob Gronkowski um, and Tom Brady. <laughs> Congratulations on a great career. So we created this Golf Barons Cup team, which I think is, is has got more genius than I intended at the time, whereby if you had to allocate someone to drive the ball and to hit woods, so they, they could only play off tees and only with woods. So I'm going to call them our wooder, an ironer, so our, our iron play expert, a shorter or a scaper, because we've got to have the oldie names, and then our putterer. Um, so it's a four-person team. I want you to nominate who's your wooder, who's your ironer, who's your shorter or a scaper, and who's your putterer from either Mizuno staff uh, or from whoever you've seen. Can I, do I, is, it, is it these players in their current state of their game? Yes, they have to compete tomorrow. Okay. Okay, so I can't say 2000 Tiger for absolutely every <laughs> single one of them. <laughs> and that's right. Sorry, there is a yes, there is another rule which says you can only nominate one person for one position, okay. including okay. caddy or ball retriever. <laughs> yeah, I know who we got for that. <laughs> so, okay, to me driver of the golf ball, I I I'm a huge Rory McIlroy fan. His driver swing, I you can't beat him as as the wooder, as the guy. You got a wood in your hand. I want Rory hitting it. Okay. Um, he's okay. just his swing is fantastic. He's got power. He's got control. He's got everything you want out of that. Irons, you know, it's and I hate to say it's hard to not say Morikawa. Like he is, he's it's the it's the easy answer, but it's the easy answer because it's the right answer. He is so good. Uh, with an iron in his hand. And again, he's he's Tiger in 2000 with an iron in his hand. Can I just ask, um, is he the one player that if Mizuno could grab anyone to be the, the pin-up, and I'm not knocking anyone that Mizuno's got because you're not investing yeah. massive amounts into it. So I'll make mm-hmm. that point. But is he the one guy that just is a perfect fit? He's fantastic. I really like Morikawa. Um, if, you gave, if I could sign one guy right now, he might be tops. But I, again... I, I, I'm a huge Rory fan. I love Rory. I love Victor Hovland. Yeah. Everything. I love his attitude. I love his smile around the golf course. And he is having fun, and he's phenomenal. I might sign Victor over him just because of how he is. Like, I, I just like him. And then I, I'm a huge Tony Finau fan as well. Right. I've never heard a bad thing about Tony Finau. He's fun to watch. He's young. He's energetic. Like, everything about him 
to me, it, it'd be one of those four guys if I had to sign one. I might sign Victor just because I love that guy. He's a modern day Trevino. He's as close as we've got to the current entertainer of that Trevino age, and I think yeah, he, gets, totally. he gets it totally. So he, yeah. I love him. Yeah. So, um, okay, right. shorter. You're shorter. You're escaper. You're shorter escaper. Um, Cam Smith. If you're talking today. Uh, Cam is phenomenal. I, I've watched him hit wedges. It, oh man, I almost wanted. Yeah, I, I was about to change that, but no, I'm going to stick with Cam. I think he's fantastic. I'm not going to let you change it because you've okay, good. Because I think it's an oh. excellent choice because he's okay, good. <laughs> he's a superstar. Okay, and then who's your who's your putter up in the golf barons cup uh, team? I, I go between. My my heart wants to say Jason Day because of just he is so solid over a short one and like every putty hits looks like it's going in. But I'm actually gonna say I'm gonna say Matthew Fitzpatrick. I'm gonna say Fitz. I love Fitzpatrick's stroke. I love how he. I, I love his confidence around the greens. I'm putting Fitzpatrick on with the flat stick. Well, well, that now that is a, a surprise. And just for everyone listening, uh, the caddy and or ball retriever will put down as Anthony Gurkovich from Mizuno, Australia. <laughs> Absolutely, ball washer as well. Don't forget, he's got to clean those too. <laughs> ball washer, bag carrier, and general all around nice guy. Um, Chris, um, that's been fantastic. I, I really appreciated your time. It's probably gone on a little bit longer than you'd hoped. Uh, and believe it or not, there were a number of questions that I didn't get to because I think the story <laughs> and the the journey is important. But but everyone's backstory is important and it's in, and it's critical that we understand that the people who are working in in golf designing at the coalface um or, or testing the product are are just us and they just love it as we love it and i think that's what comes through in the product so um chris couldn't appreciate your time any more than we have and, and thank you very much and look forward to potentially you accepting my invite back for another chat at some stage Absolutely. I look forward to it and let's get to the rest of those questions. So I really appreciate you having me in and let's let's do it again. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, Barons, remember you can go to golfbarons.com and subscribe for all podcast updates uh, and show updates as we busily prepare season three, including some Mizuno reviews, which will be fantastic because I've seen the T22 wedge one and I think it'll give you a laugh. Um, and uh, stay tuned for, for more updates. Uh, and until next time, Barons, add some swagger to your swing. <laughs>